This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! from the quarantine cigarette at Omaha deep below the metro area it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 576 which represents a bold new direction what do, what do we say it's 576 years of the two-headed nerd <laughs> nerds my name is Matt Baum yeah you know I'd say bold new direction right like last it's a week bold was, new direction last week was a milestone episode and now it's yeah. all new all different two-headed nerd yeah, and the readers are going to hate it and write the editor and be like, this is bullshit. I've got it. This sucks. I've got it. <laughs> it's THN576.now. Oh, okay. I like it. <laughs> I am, of course, the Internet's Joe Patrick. This week, we are so sick of reading about the death of democracy at the hands of racists and the global pandemic that we decided to review eight what-if comics to see if alternate realities are any better than the piece of crap we currently have Spoiler alert, not really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I still might trade for a couple of them. Maybe some of them. Maybe some of them. After that, it is up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're going to tell you all about what we're reading next week. And finally, it's time to count down our top five favorite clones. It's all happening in this 576.now episode that represents a bold new era for THN. Joe, normally... We go straight into nerd news at this point, but uh, we're not going to do that because it's review time in the cigarette. I don't understand what's happening. Why? What? What's happening? That's right. Remix. Dot now. Oh this man, is how it is. This is the remix edition coming straight out the kitchen. This is how it is. Dot now. Dot <laughs> <laughs> now. As Matt said, it is review time in the cigarette, and this week, friend of the show, Ed Schnazzi, came up with our theme: what ifs. Uh, of course, that represents actual issues of what if, Elseworlds, right. any comic sure. that features an alternate reality. Right. And I took that to mean, like, I thought about doing um, Flash 123, first appearance, uh, a first mention of Earth 2, first appearance of the multiverse. That's not really what I was considering a what if. That's Yeah, that's not, that's not a what if, because it's like that. That's a parallel that Earth. Yeah, that's an if, not a what if. Right, right. <laughs> so these are imaginary right? stories yeah as dc used okay. to call them before we get started matt i sure could use a drink justin what have you brewed up for us this week all right nerds so this week i guess we're talking about a different take on a world that we know and for for a different take on a world that you know first you have to have a really great world that you already have set before you can alter it so when it comes to classics, the perfect base, the perfect world that already is, for me, is the Negroni. Now, the Negroni is a three-part drink. They are all equal parts. Normally, you're going to put one ounce of each of these ingredients into a stirring vessel, stir for about a minute, put it into a glass on ice, and express orange into it. Ingredients are as follows. Gin, Campari, sweet vermouth. Now, in this drink... To me, when it comes to Negroni, and different people will say different things, the stars of Negroni are Campari and Sweet Vermouth. 
The gin just backs up the flavor and also gives you uh, some ABV. It actually makes the drink more boozy, which is what you're looking for, because both Campari and Sweet Vermouth are kind of low ABV. Now, if... That's alcohol by volume for you kids that aren't cool. <laughs> Campari oh, <laughs> and Sweet Vermouth are your characters, then obviously gin is your world of what you live in, and man, is it a good one to live in. I love this drink. <laughs> now, if we change one thing on this drink, if we change our, our world around us, but still have these characters in it, what can we do to get a completely different outcome as far as flavor is concerned? We can do what Erskine Gwynn did, and we can add either rye or bourbon to this drink instead of gin. Oh my. And when you do that, you get a Boulevardier. And to me, if you've had a Negroni and then you've had a Boulevardier, you will know that even though the flavor profile is there and you see that they're, you know, sister drinks, it is a whole different world as far as flavor is concerned when you have that, that beefier, spicier rye and or, you know, for me, I would prefer rye. You can definitely use bourbon if you want. I think it just makes it a bit too sweet. I like an overproof rye because it really, really fleshes that drink out. Um, so, yeah, ounce of overproof rye, ounce of Campari, ounce of sweet vermouth. Put it in a stirring vessel, stir it up for a minute, pour it over ice, and then express orange into it. Perfect drink. Completely different take on a really, really easy drink, and it's changed completely by the world around it. All right, nerds, enjoy. Just like Justice League, the nail. Uh, listen, I've got two questions. First of all, stirring vessel. Who the fuck does he think we are? <laughs> does he mean a cup? <laughs> no, a stirring vessel. You you make your drink in something separate. Like, you know, your shaker. That can be your stirring vessel, too. I ain't that fancy. I'm going to pour yeah. the shit in the cup I'm going to drink it out of. That's your fault, man. And you're missing out. Let me tell you. Uh, second of all, second of all, that boy's got a little bit of a twang in his voice. Where's he from? He's from Kentucky. You're just picking up on this now? Do you I, listen to the show? No, I don't. <laughs> Joe Patrick? <laughs> I gave up listening to this show years ago. <laughs> Good Lord, man. <laughs> Justin is a THN bartender, and soon, maybe, you'll be able to visit him at Ocarant on the Benson Strip right here in Omaha, where he runs one of the best cocktail programs in town. Joe Excelsior. Excelsior. I'll lead off this week, and we're going to talk about one of the most impressive comic books a young Matt Baum ever read. <laughs> what if, number seven, from Marvel 1989, what if Wolverine was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I remember stealing this issue from my local quick shop. I didn't buy it. As a kid, I didn't have a buck 25. And when I followed the local Tufts to the quick shop so they could buy smokes, and I remember seeing this Rob Liefeld cover with Wolverine in the S.H.I.E.L.D. uniform with the claws out, I had no choice. I had to steal this comic. It was incredible. <laughs> People make fun of Rob Leefield for his lack of noses and his refusal to draw feet, but I will be goddamned if you can't tell me that the first spread page in this comic featuring Wolvie, the Hulk, and Wendigo with the Watcher looking on isn't the coolest damn spread page ever. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Fellow image creator Jim Valentino is on the script, and he is not fucking around here. He writes the Watcher talking about Wolvie's time as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent in this multiversal plane like it was more important than the damn Bible. 
Wolfie gets loaned to the U.S. by his buddy James Hudson, who led Alpha Flight, Canada's only superhero team at the time, to sniff out Hydro Life model decoys, that's an HLMD, as opposed to just the LMD, that have infiltrated the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. They are so realistic that S.H.I.E.L.D. can't spot them. So we need Wolverine to smell them. Black Widow is here, and I'm not convinced Lee Field has ever seen a real woman's haircut along with S.H.I.E.L.D. stalwart Dum Dum Dugan, who Lee Field draws as overweight. And when Wolvie first meets him, the first thing he does is call him fat. And then he instantly guts him because it turns out he was an LMD. <laughs> an HLMD. Pardon me. He was an HLMD. Wolvie and Widow take out all the HLMDs with ease. And then the helicarrier heads for Madame Hydra's secret hideout where they kill their way to the main office. And Fury kicks the door down and says these words. Please let me introduce myself. I'm the guy what's coming for your butt. <laughs> Sounds just like him. <laughs> they don't write him like this anymore, Mr. Valentino. <laughs> this comic is review proof. It is a precursor to the 90s schlock we both celebrate and ridicule, but you can't argue that it's not fun. What if number seven was my first introduction to both Leefield and Valentino as a kid, and I still love this nonsense today. By the way, do not skip the what if Aunt May was a mutant with claws back up. It's a classic. I'm giving this a buy it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the Aunt May thing. I love this comic. Uh, I also, uh, I, let me rephrase. My cousin had this when I was a kid, uh, which I will talk about a little bit more in our, in our next review. And I read it so many times. And I think that this holds up. This Liefeld art totally. holds up. Uh, like, Nothing is re nothing is review proof, but no. But, but I'm like it's better than a lot of the stuff we make fun of him for that came after this. So Liefeld's 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 early work, uh, starting at DC with Hawk and Dove, and uh, then he he did some work here on What If. Uh, it's it is it, prior to him adopting some of his later excesses. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. And so, yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a little bit more restrained. You know uh, what it is? It's what? Lars Ulrich syndrome. If you look at Lars Ulrich on the first three Metallica records, the guy is an amazing speed metal drummer. Amazing. Leveled me. Blew me away. And then he went, you know what? I'm kind of tired of playing all these notes. I'm going to dumb it way down and just <laughs> crap shit out <laughs> you know <laughs> that's ex i think that's what happened yeah i mean maybe I, I to me i think liefeld started like adding things to his style you know like he he started changing yeah. things up but yeah i like this to me is a perfect example of a of a fun cheesy late 80s Absolutely. Action comic. It's a great read. I'm giving it a bite as well. And as a result of our uh, collective confusion, we ended up reviewing two consecutive issues of What If. <laughs> I love it. I love this. <laughs> because my first review is of the previous issue, What If Volume 2, Number 6, from Marvel 1989. Uh, as I said earlier, my cousin lived right down the hill from Ground Zero Comics in Bellevue. And one year he got a gift certificate to spend there uh, when we were kids. And among the stack that he bought were a handful of issues of this What If revival from the late 80s. This issue, which is What If the X-Men Had Lost Inferno, 
has stuck with me for more than 30 years. <laughs> it's got it all. Character deaths galore. Oh, yeah. A demon-possessed Wolverine literally eating babies. <laughs> and the complete purging of the Earth, courtesy of the Phoenix Force. Uh, Danny Fingeroff's script is capital G grim as the heroes are slaughtered left and right by the forces of Sim or Sim, uh, S-apostrophe-Y-M. Uh, I think it's who, Sim. I think you're right. Sim, uh, who has come into possession of Magic's soul sword. Who is also Big like bad news. full on making out with Madeline Pryor. In this yeah, book. yeah. Like, the Goblin Queen's there. It. They are yeah. sexing it up. <laughs> uh, even the hero's eventual victory comes at the cost of nearly all life on the planet and sets the earth back to the Stone Age. I mean, luckily, I presume everybody still remembers how to build certain things. <laughs> like... If Doctor Strange wanted to, he could probably put together some sort of like surgical lab. I hope they just all agree. Like, nope, we're cavemen now. Sort of like the end of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah, right, like, yeah. That's what we're going to do. We're yeah. cave people. The art by Ron Lim is at the peak of his 80s and 90s powers, and I oh, love yeah. it. Uh, oh, yeah. I had actually forgotten how intense this issue was. Uh, it is, though, slightly undercut by panels of exposition as uh, Fingeroth not only tells us how things played out in the quote-unquote real reality, but how things have been different in this reality up till this point and every character's plan at any given moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, he wrote this death metal script where it's just like murder pain demons awful shit and then it grinds to a halt so he can tell you exactly yeah. what's going it's on like, it's just everything is explained to you yeah uh i have fond memories of what if number six uh it's not for the faint of heart because it does get a little slow i'm giving it a skim it but i love it i'm giving it a skim it as well it, it is totally ridiculous and fun i i don't think anybody drew rachel and dr strange's hair like ron lynn <laughs> no. these are two of the most offensive haircuts they have got like i mean like the tightest firms <laughs> business in the front and party in the fucking back man now there are these are mullets unlike anything you have seen it is crazy you can blame somebody else for rachel's mullet that's not ron lynn's fault no i mean i agree but even rachel's mullet didn't look like this this was outlandish. It's bad. Yeah. Like people would throw rocks at her. Kids would cry when they saw her. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, oh, also, uh, a fun thing in this issue is uh, that Alicia Masters, who at the time in the comics had been married to Johnny Storm. Oh, that's right. Ends up having a baby after they reboot the Earth. Uh, but a, a few years later in the pages of Fantastic Four, they would reveal that that Alicia was a scroll. <laughs> So, I there mean, maybe in, maybe in this reality, she's not a scroll. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's that simple. It's what if. doesn't count. Come yeah, on. I know, but I just no. thought of it. I was like, oh, that's funny. There you go. All right, let's move on to something a little bit less bleak, maybe. A little more heady, perhaps. Sure. I'm reviewing Gotham by Gaslight from DC, 1989. It was never formally named it. Gotham by Gaslight is widely considered to be the first DC Elseworlds book. It would be re-released later on as a full-on Elseworlds. Uh, yeah, a piece of trivia for you. Uh, this is the first Elseworlds book, but the first book to actually get the Elseworlds branding was Batman Holy Terror. Really? Uh, not the one by Frank Miller, the one I think yeah. by Alan Grant and Norm Bravehogle. Not the piece of shit racist one. That no, 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 no. No. 
Brian Augustin is on the script with Mike Mignola on pencils and P. Craig Russell on inks. What a team. Holy shit. Holy, seriously. The, the, and by the way, Mignola and Russell together are incredible. It, it's absolutely stunning. It's almost too beautiful for the human eye. <laughs> it's really. And they have realized this full Victorian age Gotham. I might argue that this is a better origin for Batman than the real origin of Batman and the Joker as well. Both of the like they set up a very quick origin for Batman and the Joker in this. That is wonderful. Sigmund Freud even shows up as Bruce Wayne's buddy, giving him a proper send off as he prepares to leave Europe for his home Gotham. Little does Bruce know, Jack the Ripper is also making his way to Gotham to continue his reign of terror on the female populace. Oh, no. The story not only pits Batman against Jack the Ripper, but sees Bruce Wayne accused of the Ripper's murders, sentenced to Arkham before hanging. Ultimately, Bruce is sprung by his trusty butler and helps take down the Ripper. But I'm not going to spoil the whole connection here. You need to read this comic. Gotham by Gaslight was one of the first Batman comics I picked up as a kid because I loved Mike Mignola's art, and it still holds up. The Elseworlds version that came out in 1991 also features a story called Batman Master of the Future by Augustine and artist Eduardo Barreto, and it is also masterful. Pick this up any way you can find it. Gotham by Gaslight is on a lot of short list of the greatest Batman stories ever told, and for very good reason. Huge buy it. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that I can really add other than it is incredible it's an incredible comic it really is uh even if it's just from a visual standpoint like brian augustin he's a fine writer uh but he's not like really on the list of like big names when you think of the best writers in comics you know what i mean he's kind of a forgotten name in comics when i picked this up i forgot that this dude wrote this and i texted you and was like what happened to brian augustin like that dude was for a minute there he was really something. Yeah, he co-wrote uh, for many years with Mark Wade. Yeah. But yeah, this, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I love it. It's a buy it. Back at you, Joe Patrick. All right. I was so happy when I was making my picks this week, and at the last minute, I had a bolt of inspiration and remembered that New Warriors did a what-if story. <laughs> I was not as happy as you were, but we'll, we'll get to that. Look, you don't, you shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. My next review is of New Warriors number 11 from Marvel Comics 1991. This kicks off the Forever Yesterday storyline. New Warriors Forever. 11. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> New Warriors 11 features the complete rewriting of reality by a new version of the Sphinx, an almost entirely forgotten Nova and Fantastic Four villain from the 70s. Here, the Sphinx's devoted companion inherits his vast power after he becomes tired of his immortal existence, and history unfolds with her as the figurehead of a planet dominated by Egyptian culture. There's a fun little sequence uh, where, uh, thanks to her influence, when Moses is confronting the Pharaoh uh, from that Bible story, Moses loses and is murdered. <laughs> and so, like, Judeo Christian. fuck with the Pharaoh. That's Judeo, a bad idea. Judeo Christian culture just does not gain a foothold. There you go. Don't fuck with the Pharaoh. 
the heroes we know have either been replaced by new versions like Captain Assyria and Horus instead of Captain America and Thor, or they're part of the rebellion fighting against the Sphinx's rule. Nova is an Avenger, and his family enjoys the perks of his role, but he can't shake the feeling that he's on the wrong side. Spoilers, he's right. Fabian Nicieza and Mark Bagley were doing a lot of interesting work with a social message during this run. This issue is no different. It's got reflections on race and class. Of course, they still managed to throw in the cosmic embodiment of truth uh, to show Nova that the world is a lie and to get the story really moving. And while you can see that Bagley is still developing as an artist, I'm a huge fan of this run. And I think Forever Yesterday uh, is a great storyline, a ton of fun. I'm giving New Warriors 11 a buy it. It it was fun. It was ridiculous and it was fun. Iron Man with a flat top is the worst thing I've ever seen. But, <laughs> you know, what can you do? I mean, it was it's a just his arm. It's like it mimics like uh, like that Egyptian headdress with the flat. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I I will say this like Mark Bagley is unrecognizable to me. It's yeah, I, he definitely developed a lot through this run and then his later work on Amazing Spider-Man. But I mean, he's not bad here by any means. It's not like this was bad art. He exploded himself onto these pages literally. And it's very good. It's just I don't know that I could look at this and then look at a book like Ultimate Spider-Man and say yeah, that's the same artist. It's crazy. See, there are things, I mean, I guess maybe it's easier for me because I've been a fan for so long that like I can look at certain elements of his art and go, oh yeah, like he's always drawn, you know, mouths that way or whatever. Right. Uh, okay. But yeah, I, I, don't, I definitely agree with you. His work here is very de- developmental. But just the fact that they would even do something like this in the middle of a run back in the day, this is shit you just don't do anymore. This would be a limited series or a special or a completely, you know, and it's fun. It's fun to revisit that and be like, they did this in issue 11? Seriously? Right. Like, I I miss when comics, just like normal comics in the middle of their normal run would just have like six-part saga of whatever. And You're like, oh. Oh, you missed issue 14? Guess what you missed? They right. clap six planets together. Right. You know? I'm like, oh my God. And like the fun thing uh, is that at the end of this, obviously like reality is restored and whatever, but uh, the new warriors, the characters from the new warriors are actually changed by what happens. Uh, and it really leads to a lot more development for these guys. Yeah. Like I, I know people joke about the new warriors. I get it. I- they won me over with the juggernaut as a good guy. That's, that's where they got me. I was like, oh, juggernaut's an X, man. I love it. <laughs> oh, uh, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, like this run, especially the Bagley Nicieza stuff is, it's really great. Uh, like it's, it's dated as hell, but like it holds up to me. I think it's very good. Everything we're doing is dated as hell. What can you do? Speaking of dated as hell, I'm reviewing JLA The Nail. From DC, 1998. Uh, this is what we're calling the cocktail that Justin made because it changed some one thing happens and it Ooh. changes the whole world. So now this is this is issue one. Yes. Uh, this one was a multi-part story. Right. It was a three-part story, and then they would go on to do another one called Another Nail. Yeah. Where Alan Superman Davis. was an Amish man. <laughs> For sure. Why not? 
Alan Davis writes and draws this story of what if John and Martha Kent got a flat tire instead of discovering baby Superman. This is peak Alan Davis, who honestly did not do enough DC work. This book looks amazing. I just set it up, but with no Superman around, Lex Luthor rules Gotham City as its mayor and savior. Everybody loves the guy. The JLA is having some PR trouble. In this universe, Green Arrow lost an arm and a leg during a fight with Amazo, but lived to become the angry TV news guest that hates the JLA. Not just that, he accuses them of being aliens sent to take over the Earth. So... Lois Lane is sent in to help the JLA's story, sort of humanize them. The Joker has mysteriously gained tech that certainly looks like it comes from Apocalypse and Dark it's, Side. Uh, no. No spoilers, no? though. Okay, don't tell me then. If you've read a lot of DC, I've comic, never read this whole thing. If you've read, a, if you've read a lot of uh, post-crisis DC comics, you will recognize the design of the technology. Oh, okay. But it is not from Apocalypse. Okay. A force field appears around the earth. The new gods are freaking out. Adam Strange is murdered. Green Lantern is investigating. And the lead up to the last page is fan-fucking-tastic. JLA the Nail is some of the best Elseworld storytelling I can remember. It pays homage to Watchmen, and it focuses on what the media would probably treat superhumans like in a world without Superman. This is a huge buy-it. I've never read this. Oh, yeah, dude. Uh, JLA the Nail is one of my favorite Elseworlds. It is it, fantastic. It's it's really great. And Alan Davis, uh, he did... He's done a f he's done some DC work. He he did a run on Detective Comics in the 80s written by Mike W. Barr. Uh he did some other Elseworlds work. He did a uh, a Legion of Superheroes Elseworlds story that I really love. Uh but this, The Nail, it's such a simple premise and I think the way that he extrapolated how the world would change because the Kents did not find Kal-El is brilliant. Well, and it starts with this Shakespearean poem. I just want to read it real quick. It's very short and it sets everything up perfectly. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the knight was lost. For want of a knight, the battle was lost. So it was a kingdom was lost, all for the want of a nail. Oh, chilling. <laughs> that is something. Yeah. Uh, this gets a huge buy it for me. <laughs> the, the, the revelations uh, about the ongoing mystery. Uh, really unfold, and I recommend that you finish the series. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I plan on reading the rest. This was fantastic. But like, uh, it's got so many great, fun moments of from like just how slightly different things are than what we remember. Like Shade, the Changing Man's on the Outsiders. Uh, uh, Beast Boy is with the Doom Patrol, and then like that scene where Green Lantern smashes into the force field and finds Adam Strange is so great. Yeah. Ah, I, I didn't even know about the Beast Boy and the Doom Patrol thing. I had no idea. Yeah, Beast Boy was introduced in the pages of Doom Patrol before no the creation of the Teen Titans. There you go. Yeah. I did not know this. Uh, yeah, this gets a buy it from me. The nail is very, very good. Joe Patrick, your turn. Yes, sticking with the theme. I mean, obviously, we're sticking with the theme. My next review is of The Golden Age, number one, from DC Comics 1993. James Robinson's The Golden Age is pretty much the pinnacle of the Elseworlds concept, of what the Elseworlds concept could be. Uh, it's so much more, like the nail, it's so much more than, what if this was that? 
Right. What if Batman was a vampire? What if Superman yeah. was a caveman? What if Aunt May had claws? Right. Yeah, yeah. No. Like, it's just a tweaked history. Uh, this is a DC history that doesn't seem too different from what we already knew. Uh, it starts as an examination of the lives of costumed mystery men following the dark days of World War II and how their lives kind of... They almost, like, fall apart, you know? They, they're, yeah. they're dealing with a lot of, like... They 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 almost like I, crisis of identity, crisis of faith. Soon it becomes clear that something sinister is brewing, and some heroes are no longer what they once seemed to be. You can definitely see Robinson laying a lot of the groundwork for his Starman series here, especially with Ted Knight and his breakdown following his involvement with developing the atomic bomb. That was something that oh, yeah. definitely incorporated into Zan, uh, Starman. Most definitely. Artist Paul Smith is in a class by himself, and it kills me that he did not have a bigger career. Richard Ory's colors add kind of like a painted look to Smith's line work. It really sets the series apart from the other comics of the time. I'm not going to spoil the end of the series, but it takes a lot of great twists, and it sets the golden age among the best Elseworlds tales ever told. This first issue is a great start to the series. It's a captivating look at what could have been the history of the DCU. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Yeah, this is one of those books that I don't think gets enough, you know, pub. I really don't. I think, like, this should be way more celebrated. And when I started reading it, I thought, like, okay, he's doing a Watchmen thing with the JSA. But it's not that at all. Yeah, It's right. such a... I mean, it's similar in the sense that it's probably a little more realistic take on the JSA, I guess. But this is a masterful book. It should be held right up there with books like Watchmen and Earth X and Crisis. I mean, like, this is a man. This is a fantastic story. It's a huge buy it for me. Uh, so when it came out, it was just called The Golden Age with no, like, right. no character name, no team name, no colon. Uh but when Jeff Johns took over JSA, they reprinted it as JSA colon the golden age. And it had like right. a kind of resurgence. And so I think a lot of people discovered it around that time. It's that was the first time I read it. It's yeah. a fantastic series. Fantastic. It really is. Matt Baum. I totally forgot how much I love this comic. Oh my God. Exiles number 20 from Marvel. This is 2003 is my next review. Exiles was an amazing little title that centered around Blink from the Age of Apocalypse timeline and several other dimensionally displaced versions of characters jumping around different dimensions to fix problems with the multiverse. It was like Quantum Leap with X-adjacent characters, yeah. basically. There was like a Thunderbird and Nightcrawler's yeah. Daughter and Mimic. Oh, God, I love Nightcrawler's Daughter so much. Judd Winnick wrote the bulk of the series with help from several different artists. Here, Jimmy Calafiore is on art, and I like Jim, but I have to admit, this is not great. I mean, I don't know. He's got some problems drawing heads, you know? <laughs> the team is transported by the Talus gauntlet Blink wears to a world where Warlock the techno-organic alien and new mutant team member tried to save his fellow new mutant team member Cypher from the legacy virus by infecting him with a techno-organic virus. 
Oops. didn't work out. Instead, Warlock created a super virus that takes over the world, leaving Hank Pym and May Parker, who is Spider-Girl in this world, as the only surviving Avengers. They're holed up in Las Vegas, and they are fighting the techno-plague. Exiles was a fantastic series that combined everything you love about these what-if stories with continuity of a team basically quantum leaping from reality to reality. So it mattered. Not only were they showing us like a world where Iron Man said, fuck this and took over the planet, but you had a team of characters that were there, fixed something, and then they left and went on to the next thing. It was right. so cool. Even after Winnick left this series, it was still a great read. Oh, and I no. said that, the, no. I say that in full cognizance that Chuck Austin came on this book. <laughs> He's got a really good run with Hyperion, like Lord Hyperion. It's great. I'll, I'm giving it a buy it. I'll Sorry. take your word for it. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I haven't revisited it in years, but uh, I, I don't know. Um, the Judd Winnick run for sure, though, is excellent. All the way through. Oh, so good. Um, and I agree. Like, I love Jim Calafiore as well. Uh, he His work is not without its occasional problems. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it, this is such a fun premise, and I just love the idea. Like you said, you know, they fix the thing, and then they're on to the next thing. They're right. not like... They're not like stuck in old man Logan's universe for a year. Right. It's like jumping around. Yeah. Like, and it, you could tell like Winnick was having so much fun with it where he's just like, all right, uh, what about a universe where this happens? What about a universe where this happens? You know? And yeah, oh, yeah. it's so great. Yeah. It's a buy it for me too. It's also a callback to our uh, favorite fictional diseases because it mentions the legacy virus and the techno organic virus. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Continuity. Joe Patrick, you're up. My final review is of Superman Speeding Bullets from DC 1993. Uh, though the Elseworlds imprint got its start in 1989 with Gotham by Gaslight, which we already talked about, I think that this may have been the first Elseworlds story that I actually read. Uh, I wasn't a comic shop regular back then, not until a few years later, so I was limited to what I could find at my local grocery or department stores. I grew up in small-town Iowa, or not grown up. I didn't grow up there, but I went to high school there. Uh, when I saw this on the comic rack at the Walmart in Shenandoah, Iowa, it blew my teenage mind. As the cover plainly shows, Speeding Bullets is the tale of what could have happened if baby Kellel's rocket had been found by Thomas and Martha Wayne instead of the Kents. Their tragic tale plays out as you'd expect, but this time their orphaned son uses powers he didn't know he had to lash out at their murderer. Eventually, he becomes a vengeful creature of the night. Bruce Clark must learn what it really means to be a champion of humanity. I admit, I'm biased about this one, but I really love it. It moves at a lightning pace. It is only yeah. a one shot. Uh, and so, like, it covers decades of character development in, like, 40 pages. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it maybe tries a little too hard to meld the Batman and Superman concepts like, oops, Lex Luthor's the Joker for some reason. <laughs> like, why would he be the Joker? <laughs> Still, the script and art from the legendary J.M. DeMatteis and the late, great Eduardo Barreto still holds up for me. I'm giving Superman speeding bullets up by it. It does get a little kind of like heavy on the cheese factor. Okay, I'm going to give it a skim it. Because, and it may not even be this team's fault. This feels like they wanted to tell a three or maybe six issue story. And DC was like, 
well, we talked about it and you got one. So they were like, okay, chop it up, edit it, fire it together. We can do this. Yeah. I- Edward Barreto, Eduardo Barreto's art is stunning. It's so fucking good. And I see him working here and there are some fun moments, but again, I don't know if it's their fault or it was editorial, but it's so crushed into this one issue. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't really remember too many Elseworlds stories being more than a one shot until the golden age. Right. I have a feeling that they wanted to do that with this and they got one, they got a one shot instead. Yeah. And that's the only reason I'm giving a skim it because it's just so smashed in there. It's a, it's a cool idea. The art is great. They just have to take some pretty big jumps to get you where you want to go. It definitely moves at a breakneck pace. <laughs> oh yeah. And also <laughs> Superman, Batman breaks a lot of necks. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly does. <laughs> That is it for reviews this weekend. It's a sound made by Archie's zombie dog after it returns from the dead, after saving his best friend Archie from other zombie dogs in the pages of Afterlife with Archie. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by Chase Magnet, who likes to hear grown men cry when they think about their dead dogs. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts or send it as an email to it at nerd at gmail.com. Or better yet, you can call us and make the noise. Tell us where it came from. <laughs> we'll play it on the show. <laughs> Matt, clean yourself up. If you read that issue where Vegas dies, it's awful. Yeah, I've read it. The issue starts with Vegas as a puppy and Archie learning, like, responsibility and stuff, and then it flashes forward to what happens to Vegas, and it's terrible. I I know, buddy, I know. God! Let's head to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum and shake the magic eight ball of Marduk and reveal the theme for next week's reviews. Shake, 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 it looks like next week we will be reviewing Sword and Sorcery Comics. Stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter to see which issues we'll be reading, and you can play along at home. Thank you to Wooly Toots for suggesting the theme. Now let's peer into the Cursed Miracathon and see what it picks for the absolutely and completely random trade of the week that has nothing to do with our theme. Joe Patrick, what do we got? The completely coincidental THN Trade of the Week goes to Superman Elseworlds Volume 1 Trade Paperback. Again! This is nuts! (laughs) This is from DC Comics, uh, written by Various, art by Various, some of my favorite guys. I'm not a real big fan of Various. (laughs) It's 368 pages for $34.99. I don't really, that's like five cents a page or something. I don't know. I don't know. It's a bargain. Could be a dollar a page. I'm not certain. Here, here. Here's your solicit. In these reimagined versions of Superman, the man of tomorrow becomes a medieval knight, a grizzled loner fighting to save the planet, a dark knight, and much more. It collects the aforementioned speeding bullets, Superman Cal, which is like the King Arthur one where he becomes a knight, Superman Distant Fires, which I don't remember. Is that the one where he's like a commandy guy, maybe? I don't know. A grizzled loner fighting the same. I think that might be it. Superman, A Nation Divided, which is a Civil War uh, Elseworlds. Superman, Inc., where he becomes a savvy businessman. 
And Superman War of the Worlds, where you guessed it, he fights H.G. Wells. Oh, yeah. Superman Distant Fires was definitely a commandy thing. Like, on the cover, he's riding, like, a fucking tiger. Yeah, yeah. like, outfits all ripped up. Yeah, man. I'm just kidding about H.G. Wells. He, it's it's H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. He beats the, yeah, be, he beats H.G. Wells It's just Superman beating the shit out of H.G. Wells. It's like, what did you just say, H.G. Wells? <laughs> Why don't you say it to my face? And H.G. Wells walks up and Superman murders him. <laughs> you guys, go and buy this from your comic shop. Shops are slowly opening. Be smart about it, of course. Wear your mask, wash your hands, whatever. But shops are slowly opening. They need your help. This is a fun read. By all means, go and pick it up. Breakdown, baby. Now and again, we run out of quality topics, so we resort to the lowest form of comics journalism, lists. Yeah, BuzzFeed style. Like, five reasons you should do this, and five you should. Like, oh, I hate that shit so much. <laughs> Specifically, we're talking about our THN Top 5, and this week we're doing Comic Book Clones Countdown. So let's get to it. Matt Baum, start us off with your number five. Joe Patrick tried to tell me that this was not, in fact, my number five. I still don't believe you. My number five goes to Joseph, who was the clone of Magneto. Now, there are plenty of clones out there with weird histories, but not many get as weird as Joseph's. Magneto was gravely injured in Heen's Alkalites when he and his Alkalites tangled with Exodus and Holocaust from the Age of Apocalypse storyline. They jettison Magneto to Earth, Asteroid M blows up, and he crashes and is discovered as a much younger man, Joseph. (laughs) He has all of Magneto's powers, but he's way more emo later on. But I mean, it turns out, oops, he's not Magneto. Right, he's a clone of Magneto. And later on, he may or may not be Zorn, which is a whole I other thing. I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to get into it. I loved Joseph so much. And this was right in the middle of like that Scott Lobdell X-Men run that was so much fun. And it was just Lobdell doing like full on soap opera Chris Claremont. He was trying to be Chris Claremont, more or less. Sure. Joseph made no sense whatsoever, has all been written off, will never come back. And I love him for it. Do we even know <laughs> where he came from? Like who cloned so him? During the fight with Exodus and Holocaust. Astra cloned Magneto so she could have a new body. Let's just go with that. Because he was so gravely injured, but then she ditched the clone and it woke up later on as Joseph. He was originally intended to be an amnesic Magneto, but they wrote that off and made him a clone. Uh, so I, I, if I'm recalling correctly, the last story where Joseph was like a key figure was called the Magneto War. And I think that yes. may be where he where we got his secret origin finally. But I don't remember anything about it. I know. It's okay. Moving on, my number five is Bentley 23, first appearing in Fantastic Four number 570 from 2009. Bentley 23 was a clone of Bentley Whitman, a.k.a. The Wizard. The Wizard created a bunch of clones of himself, uh, and they all were presumed dead, except for Bentley, who survived. Uh, the Wizard, of course, was trying to use these clones to defeat the Fantastic Four, but they, st- they stopped him, and Bentley uh, kind of rejected 
his quote-unquote father's way of life. Uh, the Fantastic Four took him in. They gave him a home. They treated him like they like he was one of their own kids. Uh, he eventually were, uh, became a part of the Future Foundation. I loved him because he was constantly, like, even though he was a good guy and a part of the Future Foundation, he was constantly talking about dominating his enemies and taking over the Earth. Uh, he was just like a little maniac, and I love that kid. Bentley 23, my number five clone. Bentley was cool, and that was a fantastic run. That Future Foundation shit, God, that was fun. Yeah. Oh, loved it. Yeah, I just read the entire Joseph uh, wiki. There is no mention of who cloned him. <laughs> Zero. All right. I don't think we ever knew. Speaking of ex-clones, my number four goes to Madeline Pryor, a clone of Jean Grey. And this is where it gets really good. First appearance was Uncanny X-Men 168. This was back in April 1983. According to Chris Claremont, who was writing Uncanny X-Men at the time, the original link between Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey was entirely the product of Mastermind. Mastermind was seeking revenge against the X-Men after Phoenix had driven him insane. He uses his powers of illusion to convince Scott and the others that Madeline Pryor is the Phoenix incarnate. Now, that never really happened, and Madeline and Cyclops quickly got married shortly afterwards. Oh, they had a baby, too. <laughs> Claremont had conceived Madeline as a device to write Scott Summers out of the X-Men and have him retire happily ever after with Madeline and their baby. But editorial wasn't going for it. They wanted to bring Gene back. Yep. Boom. We've got X-Factor. And Cyclops promptly dumps his wife and brand new child to get back together with Gene. Just walks out. Yeah. But... To avoid the fact that Cyclops is a deadbeat dad and a total shithead, they retcon Madeline, make her into a clone, and then she promptly tries to take over Manhattan by leading an army of demons during the Inferno crossover while all the while wearing a thong. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's a logical progression of events. If it's you just such a, like, think about it. The whole story was like Madeline Pryor was a pilot that was working for the Summers family in Alaska, and she just happened to look like Jean. And Scott, like, went up to Alaska for a family reunion, saw her, and was just like, oh, hey, I had a girlfriend that just died that looked exactly like you. Do you want to marry me and make a baby? <laughs> and she was like, yes. That's all I needed to hear. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, put your put your future cyborg baby in me. Cyclops. And then Gene comes back, and he's like, "I am no longer interested in you or the baby we made. I'm leaving. <laughs> Goodbye." Yeah. I mean, dude, like we talk about Cyclops as an asshole, like when all that shit happened with Civil War and and killing Professor X and all that crap. Cyclops as an asshole started a very long time ago. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. I love Madeline Pryor because of how problematic she is. <laughs> My number it's four. Just a weird freaking origin. Let me tell oh, you. Oh, God. It's so bizarre. Uh, my number four clone is the guardian, Jim Harper. Uh, the guardian was a golden age character that originally appeared in star spangled comics. Number seven from 1942. However, I did uh, not know he was a clone. Yes. Well, this version of the character, uh, was revived in Superman annual number two from 1988 as part of the Cadmus project, which would later give us another clone on the list. 
this is uh, the group of scientists that were the grown-up newsboy legion. Like Flippa Dippa worked for them? That made clones of their younger selves, so there was another version of the young newsboy legion. That yes, is disturbing. including Flippa Dippa. <laughs> that is disturbing. <laughs> and Guardian, uh, yeah, so they brought back- That's like a straight-up abuse of your power, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to make a little me. You know, uh, fuck it, man. Like, Boba Fett and Jango Fett style. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the wizard did it. Lots of people did it. Wait, time out. The wizard was a bad guy. I okay, get so it. I get that. Look, the man. The newsboy legion, first of all, they became fucking scientists, and then they made little clones of themselves. That's insane. Okay. <laughs> they weren't evil clones. They were good kids. Doesn't matter. Still fucking crazy. All right. All right. The Newsboy Legion, uh, a little bit, but Cadmus specifically and the Guardian were like a huge part of that 80s and 90s post crisis Superman run. Uh, they're involved in a lot of storylines. And I have always loved the Guardian. And I was so happy. When uh, Jeff Johns and James Robinson took over the Superman books and they brought the Guardian back. Didn't Grant Morrison use him in Seven Soldiers too? Uh, it was a different a different Guardian, the Manhattan Guardian. It was a different character. Uh, of course it was. Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, this Jim Harper Guardian, he's actually reappeared yet again uh, in... Bendis's event Leviathan stuff, uh, you know, not really on the side of angels, but uh, I just have always loved that character with his goofy looking gold shield. Who Obviously, is he a clone of? Jim Harper. Oh, Jim Harper. Sorry. The Golden that. Age Guardian was a uh, was a real was a guy. Right. And so the the clone Guardian from Project Cadmus is a clone of that character, the Golden Age. Okay. Guardian. And the Manhattan Guardian was a black dude, right? Yes, I don't know if okay. his name was also Jim Harper, <laughs> but Grant Morrison was playing at fast and loose with things back then, so yeah, I'm not well, really sure. Know, that was Seven Soldiers. Who knows what happened? I mean, there, I, so. the Manhattan Guardian was a great mini as well, so no, no complaints there. But like, I specifically love the blue and gold Jim Harper Guardian. Gotcha. And his teen sidekicks, including Flippa Dippa. <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only one I can name, Flippa Dippa. <laughs> <laughs> my number three goes to kane a clone of peter parker and possibly kane from the wwe i don't think so his his first appearance he's got the hair he's got the creepy mask it's right there joe patrick if you look at it his first appearance with web of spider-man 119 from december 1994 kane was jackal's first successful attempt at cloning pete but he was deformed, so he had to wear a mask, and he was mentally unstable. Kane had all of Pete's powers, but they were slightly amplified, so, like, instead of Spidey Sense, he has visions of the future, and instead of clinging to walls, he has the mark of Kane, which is a burning touch where he melts his hand into his victim's faces, because that makes perfect sense, right? Yes. <laughs> Kane's life... It's real wacky, real goddamn fast. There's a point where he turns into a spider Hulk with a full-on spider head. He's the only one that remembers Peter is Spidey after Mephisto wipes the world's mind during one more day. Because he is Peter Parker. <laughs> he Well, so was Ben Riley, but Ben Riley doesn't remember that shit. Yes, he does. Ben Riley remembers that? He was the only, Kane was the only one that remembered. Ben Riley wasn't around for that that period of time. Okay. All right. He came back. He joined. 
He joins the new Warriors, and later on, he becomes the Scarlet Spider operating in Las Vegas. Kane's had quite a life. It's true. But he's always been like the scary clone. He was like a beefier Peter, and he was tall, and he was crazy, and he was a murderer, but he finds redemption later on. He kills Dr. Octopus. He does kill Dr. Octopus. He killed quite a few. He killed his girlfriend, too, and made it look like a suicide at one he point. He killed Craven the Hunter's son, I think? No, he killed Craven the Hunter's daughter. Craven, no, he no, 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 no. I'm talking about yeah, in the 90s. He kills, he kills the Grim Hunter, who is oh. Craven's kid. Because he went to kill Craven at one point because he had a future vision of Craven killing him, and he thinks he does, and he buries Craven, but Craven digs out of the grave three days later. He's not dead. Just like thing. Jesus. Just like Jesus. <laughs> so my number three is Ben Riley. So we might as well just roll on with this talk. I love uh, that we did that. So Ben's first appearance was Amazing Spider-Man number 149, which was part of the OG clone saga, if you will. Oh, yeah. Uh, the first appearance of the Spider-Clone. And in reality, Ben was the first viable clone of Peter Parker because he did not degrade. Right, he looked just like him. Right, Kane was all deformed. Kane's Kane's problem was that like he started to degrade, and that's why he's got that scarring. Right. Um. But Ben was like out of the box, mint condition. You got a mint condition Peter Parker on your hands right here. <laughs> um. And the clone, the original clone story ends with Peter believing that the clone has died, and instead of doing literally anything else with the body <laughs> he wraps it up and throws it in a smokestack a factory smokestack <laughs> i don't know what his end game was there i don't know what he uh, thought you know, was gonna happen that's a proper burial like, did I guess he think for a clone, it was gonna right? get burnt up i don't know yeah you just you throw it in the uh smokestack fire thing and then they'll take care of it right uh, <laughs> Obviously, years later, they revealed that Ben did not actually die. He had just been living a secret life on the uh, on the road. Uh, he had adopted a different name, Ben Riley. He came back to New York when he learned that Aunt May was sick. Uh, this was right prior to Amazing Spider-Man 400, which is where she dies. So um, Ben has feelings for Aunt May and shit? Well, all of his memories up to the point that he meets Peter Parker for the first time are that he is Peter Parker. Oh, that's right. Okay, gotcha. So, like, as far as he's concerned, he is Peter Parker. It's just that his life is way different after that point. Well, and not just that, but the Jackal convinced him that Peter Parker was the clone. Yes. And he was at, the real thing. At the very end of the clone saga, uh, it is revealed, in air quotes, that the Peter Parker we've been reading about our whole lives is actually the clone. And Ben is the one that is the real Peter Parker. And so and Peter and Mary Jane retire and go away for and five. now we have Ben Riley in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they're yep. doing such a great job yes, with him. Yes, Tom Holland's <laughs> Ben Riley. Uh, so, yeah, for five minutes, Peter and Mary Jane go away. And then Ben become, but well, so Ben comes back as the original Scarlet Spider. We all know that. Uh, but then he becomes Spider-Man for a while. And then eventually... Peter comes back. He learns, oh, whoops, I'm actually the real Peter Parker as Ben is impaled by Norman Osborn's goblin glider and turns into a pile of dust. <laughs> whoops, I'm actually the real Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess Ben was the clone after all. Uh, that should be Spider-Man's like autobiography. Title. <laughs> whoops, <laughs> I'm actually Peter Parker. <laughs> uh, 
to make things like that was a, a, a fine send off and, and a capper on the clone saga that went on for way too long. Peter Parker's back. He's been reinvigorated. His greatest enemies back from the dead, yada, 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 except many years later, Dan Slott brings back Ben Riley as the new Jackal during the clone conspiracy uh, storyline. Oh God, that's right. Oh my God. And so he is like evil for some reason. And he is, he is bringing people back from the dead in air quotes when he's really just cloning them without the diseases that killed them and then forcing them to do his bidding so that he will continue to give them the life-saving drugs they need to not turn into piles of goo. He's a drug dealer. I guess. He's a super, he's a super villain drug dealer. Yeah. Uh, at the end of it, somehow he goes back to being a good guy. And this is after Kane's time as the Scarlet Spider, but he goes back to being the Scarlet Spider again <laughs> in, in that series by Peter David, where they put him back in the blue hoodie clones man and he was kind of crazy like he acted Don't all weird and erratic yeah well i mean you're a clone shit gets weird so i like i can't really vouch for the modern day ben riley storyline but i really liked ben as a character back in the 90s all right fair enough by complete happenstance and just as it happens we are married in gay clone land joe patrick and i picked number two and number one exactly the same we're not gonna reveal our number one yet but our number two goes to x23 she was a clone of wolvie she first appeared in nyx number three now did you know that she actually first appeared on x-men evolution the animated television series before that yeah, yeah. yeah, it's there. That shit doesn't count as far as comics are concerned. I'm not saying it counts. I'm not saying it counts. But the episode was even called X-23. It was a whole thing. Yeah, and yeah. they sort of ported her into the comics. The same thing the happened old- to Firestar. Her first right. appearance was Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends. Yep, there you go. And then she's a new warrior, right? Right. Since the only sample of Wolvie's DNA had a damaged Y chromosome, the shady government agency trying to recreate the Weapon X process that created Wolverine had to create a female clone. But this one, she's got claws in her feet, too. Yeah, because her (laughs) tiny girl wrists are too small for three claws. Yeah, you know, she's got two in there and one coming out of her feet. Laura, who is the name she would take later, escapes her captors, but ended up working as a prostitute for a pimp named Zebra Daddy, which is about as believable as Joe Biden's Corn Pop gang member that he talked to. Corn Pop. (laughs) Zebra Daddy would hoe her out to creepy Johns that liked to rough up ladies because she had a healing factor and she'd get better. So yeah, you can do whatever you want, man. Laura would escape again and ultimately show up in Xavier School. Later, after Wolvie's death, she even becomes Wolverine in a fantastic series written by Tom Taylor. X-23 very much started as a stunt. There's no question to that. Right. And, and while NYX was fun, it was a good story. And it was just as like they were getting over M day and mutants were coming back and all that stuff. And they were like introducing all these new mutants that were around. X 23 became a character that creators like Marjorie Liu and Tom Taylor really took right. the ball and ran with and did a fantastic job. And now she was just in the failed fallen angels book and we're not sure where she is with the X-Men, but she's a wonderful character that I really enjoy. 
Yeah, I love X-23. You know, NYX, NYX is an X-Men story in the, like, loosest sense of the of course, word. Yeah. Um, right. It, it's very, like, continuity adjacent. Uh, it's... Uh, I can't tell you anything that happens in it other than X-23 shows up. <laughs> also, yeah, there's the one girl that's a raver. Uh, but X-23, once they put her in with the other young mutants, like in, uh, it, it was New X-Men or... It, X-Men Academy, wasn't it? It was... So I think the first run they did, it was a revival of New Mutants. Uh, and then after Morrison's time ended they called it new x-men and then i think when it was relaunched it was called new x-men academy x oh yeah which is God. a long like weird complicated history but and it also only happened in like three years they relaunched it like three damn yeah, times. yes <laughs> it was crazy but like the work that they did with her in those later new x-men books uh craig kyle and chris yost i think oh uh, yeah it's great Man. it's great and she became a really good viable character of her own uh, it's separate from Wolverine and what Tom Taylor did with her, especially in all new yeah. Wolverine. That book was amazing. Is fantastic. Joe Patrick, introduce our number one, number one with a bullet. I number one with a bullet. It's Superboy, Con L. He is the post crisis Superboy created as a clone of Superman who first appeared after Superman dies. The comic was Adventures of Superman 500. But he's not just a clone of Superman. No, he's not. At first, they try to tell you that Superboy is a clone right. uh, with 50% Lex Luthor DNA and 50% Paul Westfield DNA. Paul Westfield well, was the director of Project Cadmus. Oh, okay. See, I thought they said he was 50% human and we didn't know no, no, who no. the human donor uh, was or whatever. Well, I, yeah, at first I think they didn't, they didn't, re they didn't reveal that. Uh, it may have been during his ongoing series, they revealed that it was Paul Westfield. He was real, real broken up about it because Paul Westfield was a real bad guy. I went straight to Paul Westerberg, Lee Tinger, the replacements. And I was just like, he is a, a clone. He is half of a clone of Paul Westerberg. Strange person yeah. to clone. Um, later on in the Jeff Johns Teen Titans revival, it is revealed that his other donor is none other than Lex Luthor. Man, dun, that story dun, was dun. so good. And like, I didn't, I didn't give a crap about this character. I really didn't because like the fingerless gloves, Superboy wearing the sunglasses and I love shit. It. Like, I love him. Did, I love it. Did nothing for me. But when Jeff Johns started writing that character, in New Teen Titans, oh my God, he became so interesting. And the whole twist, because every time we have one of these clones, whether it is a clone of Spider-Man or a clone of Superman or whatever, they always like, well, I, the, the part of me that is this hero is driving me and I'm going to be a good guy. And he finds out oh yeah, you're also cloned from fucking Lex Luthor? And he throws his whole life out of balance. He's just like, oh my yeah. God, who am I? How did this happen? <laughs> they, they do some stuff where, you know, Lex Luthor is able to take control of him and that leads to oh, some pretty scary stuff. It's so good. He was killed by Superboy Prime in the pages of Infinite Crisis in 1997. Nope, sorry, 2007. Uh, later revived... In Final Crisis, 
Legion of Superheroes, uh, a Legion of Three Worlds. Good Lord. <laughs> by Jeff Johns and George Perez. That, that book was amazing. That tie-in is amazing. I don't know what the fuck it has to do with Final Crisis, and I don't care. I don't think it has anything to do with it as far as I can remember. But I remember they were just like, you know what? Final Crisis is happening. Fine. This is an excuse to do this. We're just going to do it, deal with it. And Legion fans everywhere just went, fuck it. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, uh, it's also, like, it's Jeff Johns' love letter to the Legion of Superheroes. It's where oh, they, yeah. It's where they, uh, they finally definitively establish where the three main legion versions came from there's the original yeah. version the uh post zero hour version which is also very good and then there is the mark wade barry kitson version uh if you recall that one i love that one so that's the only one that i really cared about honestly but yeah they established like what universes they all came from the, it the melted original, my grinchy legion heart yeah the original <laughs> legion of superheroes was back it's for so good, good for a while um it is also the return of uh kid flash who also died in infinite Cri- well not true that's a whole nother story it doesn't matter yeah yeah we got uh, this is gonna be a four-hour podcast yeah, yeah no it doesn't careful, matter so. <laughs> uh, but yeah so superboy came back in uh in that that miniseries he was written out of continuity when the new 52 happened. Uh, but he has recently been brought back in Brian Michael Bendis's young justice. And it's and so good. I am it's telling so you good. There is uh, the issue of action comics that came out today. Superman, uh, Connell, Superboy, and Jonathan Kent meet Ma and Pa Kent. Oh, who have recently been, uh, brought back from the dead in doomsday clock. Oh, I don't know if I'm even ready to read this. And Oh no. <laughs> uh, so the whole premise of the story is that they are remembering universes that they shouldn't remember. Like oh. they are, they are learning to re- They are, they're starting to realize that their lives have been rebooted over and over. And Ma and Pa can't come up to Connell or Connor, they call him. And they're like, how do I know that name? And I swear to fucking God, I cried like a baby. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know if I'm ready for that. It, I, I love this character so much, and I'm glad he's back. Ooh, that is our top five clones. We would love to hear about your top five clones. And, of course, you can do that this weekend. And we're going to tell you a little more about that in just a moment here. Excelsior! That is it for THM 576, and next week, Wooly Toots returns to talk about Krull, the movie, the comic, and the giant throwing star that inspired a generation of nerds. The Glaive. Until then, Joe Patrick, give these nerds a new question of the week, please. This week's question was submitted by Phil Lee via the THN forums. Which one fictional character or group would you drop into the Marvel or DC universes? For instance, would you put the Archie gang in Smallville growing up with a young Clark Kent? Perhaps Buffy Summers and the Scooby gang in the 616 proper? Maybe the entire cast of My Hero Academia bursts into the DC universe. We've been on a roll with the new question of the week, uh, and we are running low, so... Hit me up on the forums or via email, Facebook, what have you. We need your question of the week suggestions. Now, you may have noticed that this is the same question I read in last week's episode. The What's reason that about? The reason, Matt, 
is because we are very excited to announce the return of THN cover to cover. That's right. We figured our shit out. What is this we shit? Matt figured our shit out. No, <laughs> fair enough. I was going to play it like I didn't know we were returning cover to cover, but yes, I figured it out. Uh, so we have figured out the technological requirements to record live calls remotely with all parties being able to hear and speak to each other. It's an exciting time. We are living in the future. It was a small investment of about a hundred grand, so we could use some uh, PayPal donations and some Patreon support here. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we got it working, and that's yes, important. Yes, that's part, the important so. thing. Not only is Cover to Cover back, but we're going live even earlier. We will be going live at ten thirty a.m. Central Time on Saturdays to discuss the week's nerd news. That's right. The new home for nerd news is on Cover to Cover, and at eleven, we'll go live for your calls. About the news of the week, the question of the week, how you're feeling, you know? Anything else you want to hit us with. Where your head's at, you know? How we can't control you jerks, and you've proved that several times. It's true. So. It's true. Now, it is imperative that you keep your recorded calls to two minutes or less. <laughs> it's true. Because we have got to keep this show a manageable length. <laughs> <laughs> we have lives, goddammit. But we are excited to be back and talking to you guys again. It's been nice hearing your uh, MP3s and such, but we want to hear your beautiful voices. You wore us down with your whining, so we're going back to the live show. God damn it. <laughs> Jesus. If you're new to the show and you'd rather replace us with evil clones of your own creation that will probably end up devolving into the same idiots they were cloned from, mine would definitely be a Kane and Joe would definitely be Ben Riley because I'm super badass and Joe Patrick is like the touchy-feely guy. Then listen to another second. I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at twoheadednerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. We want to thank our latest Patreon donor, Ryan Hebrews Mount. Wait, he's paying us to write for the site? Shh, don't, don't, don't mention it. That poor bastard. Just let it go. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Black Mask Studios, who has pledged to donate 100% of the profits from their web store sales of several titles to support bail funds for protesters during the recent unrest around the states. In addition, the creative team of Black is selling special t-shirts featuring Carrie Randolph art and giving 100% of those proceeds to organizations dis- dedicated to fighting racism. Word to all of you guys. Thank you for keeping up the fight. Absolutely. Until next time, True Believers, remember to pre-order your comics. And honestly, I always make a joke about retailers here. We almost didn't do the show this week because of all the shit that's been going on. And just so it's known, we absolutely stand with Black Lives Matter. We stand against racism. And if you don't agree with that, don't listen to our fucking show. That's all I have to say to you. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Still download it, though. Yeah, download it, but you don't listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please continue to download. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we need those numbers.